Well, good morning again. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to make your way to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, this morning we're looking at a passage of Scripture that's probably very familiar to many of us. We've probably heard it before. It's what's known as the Lord's Prayer, though Jesus never did give it that title. Um, but you may be here and be able to recite this prayer word for word. Um, I have no doubt that many of us have heard preachers preach on the Lord's Prayer and teachers teach on the Lord's Prayer, maybe even read books about the Lord's Prayer, and those are all good avenues to get into God's Word and to understand <clears throat> what God is trying to tell us. But um, one thing I've discovered, and maybe you'll discover this morning as we walk through this passage of Scripture, sometimes we can become so familiar with a passage of Scripture, with a story in the Bible, that it almost becomes neutral. And what I mean by it being neutral is that we just get so comfortable with it. You know, we've heard it so many times, and uh, we've read it so many times, and we just kind of, we know it, but it's, there's no power that is changing our hearts. Um, as a pastor, at times I do counseling, and, and I've had times where individuals will come up and share about something going on, and, and so I'll bring out God's Word. I believe there's power in the Word of God, and I'll share a verse or share a story to, uh, that kind of helps them in their situation. And I've had numerous times where an individual will look me straight in the eye and say, yeah, Pastor, I already know that. And we can do that with a lot of God's Word, where we just know we've heard it so many times. But here's the thing, it is a very dangerous and dark place to go, and a very dangerous heart to have when we allow God's Word to be neutral. So here's what we believe about the Word of God. We believe God's Word has power. We believe God's Word is living and active. We believe all of God's Word is spoken from the very mouth of God. We believe God's Word gets us to the depths of our soul and our hearts and to the deepest places maybe we aren't even ready to uh, deal with. I understand there are some churches and there's probably some pastors that don't believe that, and I pray that that is not in this room this morning because that is another dangerous and dark place to be. Because when we get to a place where we don't believe all of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation is from God and all the things I just said, what we begin to do is we begin to take bits and pieces of what we want from God's Word. And we actually put ourselves in the role of God where we're going to take parts that say, okay, that's the part I like and that's the part I don't like, so I'm not going to really deal with that. Um, so we have to come to a place where we understand that when God gave us this Word, and particularly this prayer, it is living and active, and it is meant to change us. It is meant to impact our prayer life. I have no doubt that we have heard this before. Um, some of us may have heard it so many times. How many here would say you could probably rattle off the Lord's Prayer without reading it? You just got it in your memory? Yeah, we can, we can chant it, we can speak it freely, and then a lot of times we can do that with no meaning. So today what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the Lord's Prayer. We're going to begin in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And we're going to work our way through verse 15, but we're really going to be focusing on verses 9 through 13 this morning. So let's uh, read through this. Let's pray together, and then we'll uh, walk through it. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we humbly submit to your authority, and your power, your holiness. We thank you that we can have a relationship with you, we can hear from you, we can know that we belong to you. And Father, we pray in this time that you speak to our hearts in a way only you can through your Spirit, 
Father, if there is anyone here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, does not know you as their Heavenly Father, Father, I pray you just do the miraculous this morning and you change their identity. You change their eternal destination. Father, we do pray that your kingdom and your will would be done in each and every heart and each and every life, each and every family in this room. That you would guard our minds and our ears and our eyes and our hearts from what Satan wants to do and try to distract us from what you want us to learn from you. So, Father, we pray that you just do a great mighty work in all of us. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that's ready to accept. And pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So, Here's something we need to do. Before we jump into the Lord's Prayer, we need to deal with a little tag that uh, is a lot of times we know as a part of the Lord's Prayer, and you may know it as, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen, right? And, and so if you're reading your scripture, um, you're probably wondering if you have a misprint in the Bible or and where is that tagline because, you know, it's even been put in songs before. But if you look at the end of, the, at the end of 13, after the word evil, There should be a notation after that word that is most likely to take you to the bottom of your passage of Scripture, bottom of your Bible, where you'll find that little tagline once again. The reason it's not there, and maybe you have a Bible where it actually still is there, the reason it's not there in most Scriptures today is because it hasn't been found in the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Matthew. And so some Scriptures just put it at the bottom of the page, some Scriptures leave it in there. There's nothing unbiblical about it. But we want to make sure we have what God actually said and not what someone inserted in at some point in time throughout history. And so don't panic if you don't see yours there. It's probably somewhere on that piece of paper that you're looking at right now. When we begin, let's jump back up to the very beginning of this prayer once and, and see what Jesus is saying to us. I've heard many people say, you know, this is the only way you should pray. This is the only prayer you should pray. And there's a problem with that because we can make this prayer, if it's the only thing we pray, and these words, the only words we pray, be the empty phrases that Jesus said we shouldn't do back in verse 7 when he spoke with the Gentiles. And if you look in Scripture, you see that Jesus didn't, in fact, pray this prayer all the time. In John chapter 17, it's what's known as the high priestly prayer. And in that prayer in the upper room, Jesus prayed that his Father would be glorified in what is about to take place. He prayed for his disciples that they would be one and they would continue to be set apart by truth. And he prayed for you and me. He prayed that we would be one and and people would know that we belong to him by the love we have for one another. If you turn to the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, right before Jesus, as Esther had pointed out, is arrested, he prays, if it be possible, let this cup be taken from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And on the cross, before Jesus gave up his final breath, he lifted up one final prayer. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I bring this up because Jesus here in Matthew chapter 6 is not giving us a script. And only pray these words. Only say this, this prayer in our life. He's given us a model of prayer. And we can know this because the beginning of verse 9. Pray then like this. He does not say, repeat these words only. He does not say, this is the only way you are to prayer. This is the only words you can use in prayer. Because again, if he would have said that, he would have gone against what he just taught us about not lifting up empty phrases. But a lot of times in prayer, that's exactly what we can do. We can lift up empty phrases, things we think we should pray about, things we think other people want us to be praying about, but there's no heart, there's no thought behind it. 
I think that's the danger of the Lord's Prayer at times, is we can read through this and not actually hear what God is trying to teach us. He's given us a model, so we don't fall into temptation of having a neutral or dull prayer life. So the prayer begins with a very significant opening statement. Our Father in heaven. And it's significant because Jesus is telling us several things when it comes to prayer. First, we pray as a community of believers. Not for show, but he says, our Father. Not my Father, our Father. It's significant because we also, when we pray, we pray knowing that we belong to God. We have an eternal family. We have an eternal Father. And here's the thing. You cannot pray the way Jesus teaches us to pray and models prayer unless you're a child of God. You cannot call God Father unless you have called Jesus Christ your Savior. And so we learn right off the bat, our Father in heaven teaches us we are to pray intimately. What opening of prayer does is to remind us we're not alone. We have an eternal family. We have an eternal Father. But the title for Father here, as Jesus teaches us, holds significance. In the Jewish way of life, they did not speak the name of God. They were taught that if, if you said the name of God out loud, you were belittling his name. You were blaspheming the name of God because God is holy. And Jesus is not taking the holiness away from God here, but he is showing what is going to take place through his life and his death and his resurrection, that God is still going to remain holy, but now we need to draw near to him in intimacy. Again, we have to remind, as Esther pointed out, the Jewish people believed God dwelled in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. And only a priest cast by lot could go into God's presence to offer up the sacrifices for the people. But Jesus is saying now through his death and his resurrection and our faith in Christ alone, we now have complete access to God. So when Jesus breathed his last and gave up his, his spirit, the veil was torn, the curtain was ripped in half, and we can now enter into the Holy of Holies because we have complete access to God the Father. God being Father points to intimacy. The word for Father in Greek is pater. That's a fun one. It literally means father, ancestor, and parent. The Apostle Paul, who grew up in the school of Pharisees, when he met Jesus Christ and accepted Christ as his Savior, was given the Holy Spirit, was led to write this. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons. And that word sons there in Romans chapter 8 can also be read as sons and daughters. It's gender neutral. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And here's the thing about that. He speaks about adoption. Paul is writing to a group of Roman believers. A passage comes from Romans chapter 8. In the world of Rome, adoption held a lot of significance. And so Paul's not using a word that is just, you know, kind of a cute word for our relationship with God. You see, in the world of Rome, you could actually disown your own children. I could disown Ethan. I could disown Abby. I could cast them out of the family. But if I adopted a child... I could not. They actually held more right in the family than a blood-born child. And so once you adopted someone, they were set in that family. So what Jesus is saying when we call God Father, if we are God's children, we have a spiritual birthright now to approach God as his child. That's why prayer is intimate. 
We're not speaking or listening to a God who is far off, but a God that has drawn near. And through prayer, we draw near to God and the Father who loves us. So it begins with intimacy, but notice what he says next. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray to authority. Our Father's name is hallowed. What's that mean? It means holy, set apart. There's nothing like it. Our Father is in heaven because that is where his throne room is. That is where he dwells. And so prayer gives us direct access to the throne room of God, the direct access to the creator of all things. And we can do this because of who Jesus Christ is and our faith in him. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus was our high priest. In verse 16 of chapter 4, he says, Because he is our high priest and because we have faith in Christ, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne room of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is a huge statement by Jesus as he's teaching us a model of prayer. Because the Jewish people, which were Jesus' audience, believed only the priests could intercede on their behalf. Only the priests had access to God because that's how God set it up in the Old Testament through the line of Aaron. But now through Jesus, who is our high priest, who was without sin, we have confidence not in ourselves, but we have confidence in who Christ was, that we can now come into God's presence as his children, into the holy of holies, and sing his praises, and to commune with him through prayer. Again, that word hallowed is to remind us, yes, God is intimate, but he's holy. It's most sacred. He's set apart. There is no one like him. And so we are to honor him as holy. So we not only receive a lesson on prayer here, but we also receive a message on the name of God. If you've ever stubbed your toe or you've lost your temper in traffic, and you said the name Jesus Christ or oh my God, you have belittled his holiness. You have made his name mean nothing. The name of the Lord in Scripture and throughout Scripture is always to reveal His character and His nature. And since God is holy, all of His names are always holy. And so we come into this intimate place with God in prayer, but we're also called to remain reverent. We don't belong here. And it's only by Jesus Christ we're allowed to be here. Then look in verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's part of the prayer remind us that not only do we serve a great God and are loved by a great God, but we are called to something greater. Something greater than a paycheck, something greater than a retirement fund. It's to remind us that we are a part of something greater, greater than our community, greater than our schools, greater than our sports teams, greater than our jobs and our workplaces. We're called something even greater than our earthly family. Your kingdom come and your will be done is a prayer to call us to participate. When we're told to pray for God's kingdom to come, we're told to pray in such a way for God to reveal how we can be participants in his kingdom. And to be a part of God's plan is to be a part of reaching people that are lost. God's will for everyone is that they would be saved. So when I say, God, your will be done, your kingdom come and your will be done, I'm saying, God, help me to be a participant in reaching the lost for your name. It also reminds us that God is always at work. At the end of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the Apostle John, who was commissioned to write that letter to the seven churches. And the final words of Jesus are, Surely I am coming soon. 
And so when we pray, we pray for God to reveal how can we be a part of his coming soon. Jesus would prepare his disciples later in the Gospel of Matthew for the end of days and what would ultimately bring his return. And he said this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done, we're asking God, God, show me how I can be a part of your kingdom's plan. Show me who I need to share the gospel with. Show me who I need to proclaim the gospel to. Show me who I need to share Jesus with. Lord, let your kingdom come and will be done. has to begin with me. I have to be a willing participant in what you want to do. So we're asking God, God, give me the strength. And God's will can only be done if we are living in it. So we're praying, God, transform me so I'm no longer conforming to this world, but I'm conforming to your will. This begins with us as God's people. If we want God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, then we have to be participants. Then Jesus says in verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. So we pray for provisions. We've got to keep in mind the original audience of Jesus Christ at this time was Jewish. And so their idea of bread was a lot different than our idea of bread. Most of the times when they heard that word bread, they would be taken to the times of Moses in the book of Exodus. And they would be reminded how God delivered on their doorstep every morning except on the Sabbath heavenly bread known as manneth. Manna. This is not only a prayer for provision, but it's a, prepar- a prayer for necessity. Part of the prayer reminds us we are to be completely reliant upon God for all of our provisions and all of our necessaries. The give us is a request to God because He is the giver. So this part of the prayer is also a reminder that we are relying upon God. And notice what Jesus focuses on. He says, give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't say give us this week or give us this month or take care of us this year, but it gives us a reminder this day is where we should focus. Jesus is going to teach later on in this chapter, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So prayer is now a reminder to focus on the now. You know, in my own life, I, I, I get overwhelmed when I start thinking about what could happen this next week or what could happen this next year. I'm a big planner, and it drives my wife, Jamie, crazy at times. So what I have found when I've become overwhelmed about what may happen or what could be, prayer allows me to calm my heart and to focus my mind and my soul to focus on the now. Here's the thing. We don't live in tomorrow. You don't even know if you'll make it to tomorrow. We live today. And God has given us today, so we pray to God, God, help me focus on today. Help me rely upon what I need today. We will never live on March 6, 2022 ever again. You'll never be back in this day ever again. So, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Help me to focus in this moment and help me to live in this moment because this is what you've given me for right now. Next section of the prayer gets a little more personal. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
The emphasis is on God forgiving our debts. What are our debts? Well, the Bible says that the wage or the cost of sin is death. And so we all have debts. We all have a debt to God. We, we are sinners. We still struggle with sin. So here we're praying for forgiveness. I mean, that seems pretty obvious. And we do so with the understanding it is only God who forgives. You don't come to a preacher and ask for the preacher to preach over you or to pray over you so you can have forgiveness. You don't do some sort of action in order to remedy something you've done wrong. God is the only one who forgives because God is the one we have sinned against. But like I said, it's a little more personal, isn't it? Because not only are we asking God to forgive us, but we're asking God to forgive us in the same manner that we are forgiving others. Ouch. Jesus emphasizes it even more in verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That hurts. The book of Colossians, we're told to put on the new self, which is to put on Christ. And that implies compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So prayers reminds us that we are to be forgiven, but it also reminds us we are to be forgivers. In other words, if we want God's forgiveness for our wrongdoings, for sometimes our stupidity... That means we have to forgive others for their wrongdoings and their stupidity. Otherwise, Jesus makes it very clear. If you do not, neither will your Father. So maybe a prayer for some of us this morning is we need to pray for a forgiving heart. God reveals throughout the Word that unforgiving heart turns to bitterness, which turns to anger, which turns to malicious intent. And you notice who's actually impacted by that? Not the person we're mad at. Not the person we can't forgive. The person that gets impacted is us. When we, don't have an in, uh, we have an unforgiving heart, we're the ones who get impacted by it. It impacts our life and our heart. And God also knows because sometimes we get uncomfortable when we have to ask for forgiveness or we have to give forgiveness. Sometimes we don't want to do that uncomfortable situation or that uncomfortable conversation. And so we're just going to put it under the rug. We're going to put it out of our mind. We're just not going to go there. And God knows when we do that, it begins to boil up in our heart and it begins to consume not the person we can't forgive. It consumes us personally. As Christ's forgiveness has freed us from sin, so our forgiving of others frees us from becoming hard-hearted. The Bible teaches us to forgive others no matter the crime, no matter the situation. And we do that, that's the evidence that we actually understand how much God forgave us. Finally, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I find this part of the prayer, I always found it interesting. God says in the book of James, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So I always, got, I always wrestle with that. If God tempts 
no one, and God's not the tempter, obviously, then why am I praying, God, lead me not into temptation? Wouldn't that mean God is the one that is tempting? The answer is no. In Corinthians chapter 10, it says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be to endure it. So what is Jesus teaching us here in verse 13 with this prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver, deliver us from evil. It's a reminder we will face temptations. But here's the thing. Being tempted is not the sin. It's falling into the temptation that creates the sin. James chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. So what is being taught here is when we pray, we're praying to God to give us the strength to trust him over the temptation. God, don't lead me there, and I know you're not going to tempt me, but help me to trust you and follow you because you obviously didn't lead me to the temptation. Help me to trust you and to be obedient. Douglas O'Donnell writes, Here we find a petition for utter dependence on God's providence, protection, and power. It is a prayer of a weak person to a strong God. Now, how many here know that you've been tempted today? We all battle with temptations. Maybe you're tempted to covet. Maybe you're tempted to lust, be angry. Maybe you're tempted to promise things that you don't actually plan on delivering. Maybe you've had the temptation that you really want someone to get in their place. Maybe you have a temptation to want to hurt somebody. Maybe you have a temptation to not love people even though you can't stand them. Do you know this is what Jesus dealt with in Matthew chapter 5? Apostle Paul is giving you understanding it's God's word which reveals sin to us. In Romans chapter 7, Paul reveals that his struggle, his temptation was coveting. Now what he coveted, we're not sure of. He doesn't elaborate on it. We're not meant to speculate but I'm willing to guess if we all sat down for a moment and really thought about it, we wouldn't have a very hard time figuring out what we're actually being tempted with, where we're actually falling into sin. You may be here and you're holding a grudge against someone else or against a family member, which is keeping you to love them the way God's commanded you to. You may be here and you're dealing with lust. There's someone of the opposite sex you just keep looking at. And maybe it's not even looking at. You're having conversations with someone of the opposite sex that you should not be having. And it's creating an adulterous heart. You're having an emotional attachment. Maybe you have anger issues, which is causing you to lose words that tear down and don't build up. Do you know there's some words as a believer you shouldn't use? The Bible is very clear. We need to watch our tongue and tame our tongue. Here's the thing. God knows what tempts us. He knows what is in danger of pulling us away from his presence. And so we come to this portion of prayer. We're saying, God, give me the strength to trust you. Because I know what I want to do. But I know that's not your will. I know that's not your word. And too often we run off of emotions. We run off our natural responses. We have our perspective. We have our point of view. We have our rights. 
But you know, the Bible says as God's people, we have no rights. We belong to him. We're now slaves of righteousness. So we say, Lord, deliver us from evil. To do this, we need the armor of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul was led to write about the armor of God beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. The word Lord says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Lord, deliver me from evil. God, give me the strength to trust you and therefore follow you and not my sinful nature. Clothe me in your righteousness and help me to cling to the things which are yours. Lord, help me to trust you over the temptations that come in my life, and there are many. This brings us back to where we began with the phrase, Our Father, there in verse 9. And I have a very simple but very meaningful question you have to answer. Is God your Father? Are you His child? So the only way God can be your Father and the only way you can pray in the way that Jesus teaches us to pray is that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins by His death and His resurrection. And you have been given the Holy Spirit which declares you are a child of God and therefore you've been given eternal life. Is God your Father? If you need to know how to answer this question. God gives us a very straightforward road in His Word. It first begins by admitting that you're a sinner. You have fallen short of God's holiness, His perfection. You've fallen into those temptations and lived out those temptations. That's sin. Anything opposed to the Word of God is sin. And so you admit not to Pastor Mike, not to Mom and Dad, not to grandma and grandpa or whoever's around you. You don't admit it to them. First, you have to admit it to God. God, I have sinned against you. And that brings a place where God extends his gift of eternal life, where if you believe in your heart that God loves you so much, he sent his only son to die for your sins, to take your punishment on the cross. And he died, and they placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later to show he has the power over sin and death. And you believe that God loves you that much, and that gift is for you, which it is. If you believe it in your heart, the final step is you have to confess with your mouth. That means to make publicly known. And this is the part you've admitted to God. Now you confess it to God's people. I want to be saved and forgiven. And I want Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So we're going to come to a time of invitation. 
And I'm going to be standing right down here. And if that's you today and you know I cannot call God Father because I have yet to call Jesus my Savior. Then I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. We're going to pray together. And I guarantee you this, Satan's going to try to tempt you to stay where you are. But no, there's not going to be a person in this room that is not going to be excited for you and cheer for you and want to hug you and love on you and be so happy you're a part of their eternal family. So let's pray together. And if you need to come down, I'm going to invite you to come. Father, we come before you. You are so good and great and mighty. We thank you for your discipline. We thank you for your word and your spirit, your counsel. We thank you that you love us that much, that you do not let us go through this life alone. You promise us you'll never leave us or forsake us. Father, we want to be great prayers because we have to be completely reliant upon you to do whatever needs to be done in our families, in our churches, in our community, and in this world. So Lord, I pray in this moment that you draw your children to their knees to turn to you and rely upon you be in awe of you. And Lord, I also pray for the individuals here this morning who aren't saved, or maybe they, they're not sure. Father, your spirit would get a hold of their hearts so much that they cannot stay where they are, but they would come down and have their eternal destiny changed. Thank you for this incredible gift. Thank you for this time we've been able to be together. We praise in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.